Amen. Our God is into life. The New Testament Gospel of John, speaking of Jesus, it says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. It's his desire to give life. That's what he does because it's what he is. In that, he gives to us in his desire freedom and peace with rejoicing. That's words that the New Testament uses to describe the life that we have. Now, there are things in our lives and in our walk that promote life, and there are things that strip life away. And God's ongoing quest with each one of us is to promote the things that lead to life and protect us from that which strips it away. And so the wise man or woman in any generation is the one that listens to God, obeys what he says, and finds life through that. It's what Jesus called the narrow path. He said that there was a broad path that leads to destruction that many find, And he said that there's a narrow path that leads to life, and there are few that go that way. But the wise person finds God's will, obeys it, and it leads to a narrow path that leads to life. Now, the foolish are those that cast God behind them, go their own way, and in the process, they lose the very thing that they're grasping for. Seeking after life, they never quite find it. They lose the thing that they're looking for. Now, having said that, in these closing chapters of 1 King, we're looking at a character, a man by the name of Ahab. And Ahab was an idiot. And that's really the title of the message last week and this week. It's Ahab the Idiot. And he really was an idiot. And here's why. Because here's a man who was given so much grace. He killed the prophets of the Lord. You recall him and Jezebel, they went on a campaign to wipe out God's people and God's voice in the nation. They had led the nation, the people of God, into idolatry, the depths of which had been unmatched by any other period in Israel's history up to this time. They had caused a famine to come upon the land that lasted three and a half years to where the people were starving to death because of the lack of rain. Then he saw the fire of God fall when Elijah prayed and he saw the hand of God burn up the bull that was on the altar and he saw the rain of revival coming. But then after the fact, he again allowed his wife Jezebel to chase Elijah away in pursuit of his life. So even after being preserved and then God having patience with him and then God allowing him to see his spirit fall, then he pursues Elijah again And God still had patience and mercy with Ahab after that. We saw in our study last week that he had war with Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And God sent a prophet, one of the ones that he was seeking to kill, to tell him that he would have victory in spite of himself, a victory that he did enjoy. Grace again being bestowed upon Ahab. But yet, we saw at the end of the chapter, Ahab didn't kill Ben-Hadad as he should have and as was God's will, but rather he let him live and even gave him inroads into Israel whereby he could come in and traffic in the land amongst God's people. So God had had so much grace upon Ahab, but Ahab continues to turn his back on God and go his own way. We saw in the last chapter, he let the enemy live. Tonight, as we get into chapter 21, we're going to see the second strike against Ahab, the second of three, and that is that he was also a man who was mastered by his passions. Not only did he let the enemy live, but he was mastered by his passions. Look at at verse 1 of chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard. So a new character comes on the scene, a man by the name of Naboth, He's not royalty, he's not dignitary, he is just a common citizen of the land of Israel. And it says that he had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, and it was hard by the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. So the vineyard of Naboth shared a property line with the palace of Ahab. And Ahab spoke unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, or a vegetable garden because it is near unto my house, and I will give you for it a better vineyard than it, 
or if it seem good to you, I will give you the worth of it in money. So I'll trade you. I'll give you a better vineyard than the one I'm getting, or I'll pay you the full sum of what that land is worth. And Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed, and he turned away his face, and he would eat no bread. Poor, poor Ahab can't get what he wants. What we have here is we have a reasonable request that's responded to with a reasonable reply. The request is, I'll buy or trade for the vineyard that you have. The reply was not one of refusal or adamant, stubborn, you know, neglect to do business with the king. But rather, we get the idea that he prayed about this move, sought counsel about it, and realized that it was outside of the will of God for him to sell or trade this land that had been given to him. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, God spoke and he said, The land shall not be sold forever. For the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. God said from the beginning, this land is mine, I am giving it to you. It was divided by lot, given through the hand of Joshua to the tribes as an inheritance. And it was allotted by family. The lines were laid out according to the families. And they were not to leave that that land or sell it or anything. And if they fell on hard times and had to mortgage it, every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, the land would revert back to its original owner. In Numbers 36, verse 7, God said, So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And so, Naboth responds to Ahab and he says, it's not that I don't want to sell it to you or that you're not offering me a good enough plot of land or sum of money, but rather this is a God thing. This is land that's been put in my family. It's the inheritance of my fathers. There's a sacred trust in it and it isn't in my power to give it to you. It's over my head. Talk to God about it. That's the reply. This is a good God-fearing man, this man Naboth, not willing to back down to the bullying of the king. What we see here in the sulking then of Ahab is a man who has a covetous spirit. He's coveting or desiring something that isn't his. Now, you know, like I do, that coveting is one of the commands that God gave in the Ten Commandments. It's the Tenth Commandment, that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's land, your neighbor's ox, or anything at all that is your neighbor's. It was a command that God gave in the law. In the New Testament, this idea of coveting is directly linked to the deeds of the flesh. According to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul tells the New Testament believer to put away the deeds of the flesh, and then he lists them off, finishing his list with covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is defined as wanting more And finding satisfaction in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's seeking satisfaction for that void within through the things that you can get in this world. Whether it be possessions or experiences, things that the world has to offer and and, and wanting to be filled with those things. That's what coveting is. Now the problem with coveting is that it is both the result of and the cause of a vacuum in the soul. See, the reason why we covet something that we don't own or possess is because we're trying to fill something that's inside, especially when our response to a refusal is that which Ahab has. He can't even sleep because he wants what he's asked for so bad. He's got something inside that he needs a certain possession to have in order to fulfill that need. The other problem with that is not only is it the cause of that vacuum, but the result of obtaining the thing that you're coveting for is that it just makes that vacuum even larger. It creates a vacuum even larger than the one you were trying to fill in the first place once you have the thing that you wanted. And God sees it, and he sees that it destroys the soul 
and so he bans it. Now, the soul cannot be satisfied under a covetous mindset until it obtains what it wants, and the problem is then it isn't satisfied once it obtains it. And a covetous person lives by the rule of he who dies with the most toys wins. That's what a covetous person is. And that's what Ahab is. He's a covetous person. And so what does it say? It says in verse 5, it says, But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that you eat no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and I said unto him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered me, I will not give you my vineyard. Now, that's not what he answered you, but you know, stretch the story. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be merry. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. Honor Naboth. And set two men, the sons of Belial, before him, sons of sons of hell, sons of Satan, if you would, saying, you did blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and they sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city, and they stoned him with stones that he died. Beware of flattery. They're just setting you up to kill you oftentimes. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass that when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And you can just hear the pride and see the smirk in her face as she says it to her husband. And it came to pass that when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Now here we see a couple of attributes or characteristics of the covetous person, the person that has a vacuum in their soul that they want satisfied. Number one is that they surround themselves with enablers. We see that in the person of Jezebel. He knows the response that she's going to have when he lays his head upon the bed and lets her see him sulking as she did. But he surrounds himself with that type of person because he wants what he wants and he knows how to get it, whether it's through himself or through his agents. And a covetous person will always surround themselves with enablers. The second thing is that they will find a way or make a way to obtain or attain what it is that they want. We see Ahab here removing the obstacles that would keep him from having the land. As long as Naboth is alive, he can't have it. But if Naboth is gone, then he can. And so he doesn't do it firsthand, but he allows it to happen, and God's going to hold him accountable for the action of having Naboth assassinated. And so he removes the obstacles Um, in order to get what he wants. Number three is that the desire for the thing will always take first place to everything else in life. Ahab's desire for this vineyard supersedes God and his will for Ahab. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what God wants for me or what God wants for this neighborhood or this nation. I want a vineyard and I'm willing to put my lust above what God wants. He's willing to put it also above the man Naboth and his inheritance. He doesn't care about Naboth or his well-being or his existence. He just wants what he wants and he'll steamroll anyone he has to to get it. He doesn't care about the life of a man that inhabits the land. He's willing to kill for it and he doesn't care about the righteousness of a nation. He'll put his desire before anything else in order to get it. That's always an attribute of a covetous person. They want something And they will find a way to get it, to remove every obstacle. And they'll put that thing or that attainment or that experience 
before anything else in life, regardless of the cost or the outcome. And then, uh, and, and when you combine unlimited resources, like what Ahab has, with a covetous heart, you end up with a toxic combination. Because you have a man who can do whatever it takes to get whatever he wants. And we see him employing that method here. Now, every single one of us that's sitting here in this room right now has the tendency and the ability to be covetous. It's at the core of human nature and our condition. Every other commandment that God gives in the Ten Commandments is somehow attached to the covetous command. Because in order to break all those other commandments, covenant, you have to be covetous first. In other words, if I'm going to steal, why would I steal? It's because I want something that I can't pay for. It's the result of covetousness. If I'm going to commit adultery, it's because I want something that isn't mine and that I can't have because I'm outside the boundaries of that covenant. If I'm going to worship an idol or if I'm going to even Sabbath break and steal time back, it always comes from a covetous heart that's inside. I find it interesting that that was the command that convicted the Apostle Paul of his sin. He would testify out of his own mouth and say that I was blameless concerning the law. I kept it as a Pharisee. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. He lists everything that he did, and he was the perfect Jew. But in the book of Romans, he testifies out of his own mouth. And he says that when he read the command, you shall not covet, He realized that the law at that point went beyond the actions of the hand and it went into the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Because coveting doesn't take place with the hands. It takes place in the heart. And he realized that if the law of God doesn't just affect what I do, but it affects who I am, then I'm guilty of the law because I cannot honestly say before God that I've never coveted anything in my life. And not one of us can. We're slain by the law covetousness is at the very root of our fallen nature. Because when Adam sinned, he was cut off from the life of God. And in being cut off from the life of God, it created a vacuum within his soul. And ever since that time, man has sought to fill that void, that vacuum that's in his soul, with anything that he can fit in it. And every one of us has an inclination towards something to try to fill that void that is contrary to the will of God for our lives. Sometimes it's possessions, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's experiences, sometimes it's relationships or experiences within relationships. But every one of us has the ability to operate within a covetous heart. Here's the problem, is that we live in a country, in a society, and in a day when we can get it if we want it. Just like Ahab was a man with unlimited resources and a covetous heart, and it was a toxic combination, we have the ability to get basically whatever we want. Even if you don't have the money, you can still basically get it. If you don't have the moral authority, you can, in this society, get it. Isn't it amazing when you turn on uh, the TV, the network, um, you know, television now, you, you, what the level that they've brought it to? I mean, reality TV, it used to be, let's see if you can survive out in the you know, open, or, or let's have an amazing race or something. Now, that's not selling anymore. So what do we do? And you see them in the boardroom. We're like, well, how can we make this better? Make them naked. You know, tell them to take their clothes off and survive. That'll never fly. Oh, yes, it will. We live in the United States, you know. And, and that's, that's where we've gone. That's where we've come because there's no more boundaries. And that's the society that we live in, that if you want it, you go get it. And so there's no moral compass or boundary. There's no financial boundary because you can just get whatever you want in this society. And therefore, it puts you and I in a position where if we're not aware of the covetous nature of our flesh, then we'll be sucked in by the vacuum of our own desires and we'll lose our life to the things that we're trying to fill ourselves with. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And Ahab was a man who had no control over his fleshly desires. He threw the reins upon his lust and he was mastered by his passions. Well, look at the outcome in verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah's been off the scene for a couple of years now at this time, and here he comes back in. 
saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he is gone down to possess it. And you shall speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, You have killed, or I'm sorry, hast thou killed and also taken possession? And you shall speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because you have sold yourself to work evil in the sight of of the Lord. Interesting, the word that Elijah uses as he responds to Ahab, he says, you have sold yourself to work evil. In other words, the price that you paid for that vineyard was beyond a better vineyard or the money. You paid for that vineyard with your blood because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of of the Lord. Behold, Elijah says, in the name of the Lord, I will bring evil upon you and I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Those were two former kings that God had cut off along with their sons. For the provocation wherewith you have provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spoke the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dies of Ahab in the city, the dogs will eat. And him that dies in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Now, can you imagine the response of Ahab as he's just listening to Elijah line after line, just just expound on this indictment and this condemnation that's coming from the Lord. Yeah, you're going to die. Your kids are going to die. You're going to get eaten by dogs. She's going to get eaten by dogs. There's going to be dogs everywhere in Israel. They're all going to eat you and your family and everything that you've ever known in the field, out of the field, dogs. You're done. You know, I mean, just imagine what's going on in this guy as he's hearing Elijah say all of these, these crazy things. But then it sums up Ahab this way, verse 25. It says, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord did cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, that he tore his clothes And put sackcloth upon his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went softly, or in meekness, or humility. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbles himself before me? Because he humbles himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Now how patient is God? to deal with this man in this way. If I was Elijah, I'd be like, what? Are you crazy? I mean, another chance you're going to give this guy? But isn't that the way God is? And, and, you know, really, I'm thankful that that's the way God is. Because although it's easy for me to put myself next to someone like Ahab and think, well, I'm not really that bad, it also encourages me because I realize that if God would be willing to show patience and grace with Ahab to bring him to a place of repentance then how much more will God bring me to a place of repentance or be patient with me to bring me to that place that he might give life according to his will and his desire? That's what God wants for Ahab. He wants to bring him into life. Now, although it tells us here that Ahab humbled himself, it does not tell us that Ahab repented and Ahab did not repent of his sin. He humbled himself and God responded. God responds to two things, faith and humility. Those are two things as you look through the scriptures that move the heart of God. When someone believes in the things that he says and when someone humbles themselves before him, God pays attention to that. And Ahab humbles himself here, but he doesn't repent. If he did repent, not only would this humility be followed by a changed life, which is not, as we will see as we go into the next chapter, but he also would have returned the vineyard to the family and the heritage of Naboth, which he doesn't. 
he wants to be right with God, but he also wants the thing that his heart is coveting after. And he's not willing to part with the thing that he wants in order to be right with God. And so he humbles himself, but he doesn't repent. And thus he stays in an unregenerate state. And his destiny is still not yet with the Lord. And it will not be in the end. In Hebrews chapter 6, there's a very difficult passage of scripture. You know the one I'm talking about if you're a Bible person or you've been reading the Bible for any period of time. It's the scripture where it says that it is impossible for those that have tasted of the word of God and of the heavenly gift and of the powers of the world to come, that if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves afresh the Son of God uh, again the second time. And I remember when I read that verse the first time, I thought for sure that was me. I'm the one that sinned after I've tasted the good word of God and tasted the powers of the world to come and tasted of the heavenly gift. I've sinned after I've gotten saved. By the way, is there anyone in here that you haven't sinned since you got saved? Because I'd like to meet you and shake your hand and find out the secret of your great success. I think Satan has this thing that he can do, that he can leave a Bible open to that passage when we're not walking the right way. You ever have that happen? You know, you, you know you're not as close to God as you should be, and then you open up your Bible and say, God, I want to get back right, and you open it to Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10, one of those passages. You know, that happens all, that's just the way it is. And you say, well, what is that? What, what's the case there? If I sin after I'm saved, is that talking about me? I believe that that passage is talking about someone just like Ahab. See, Ahab had tasted of the heavenly gift. He had seen the power of God, the fire of God, fall in the presence of Elijah and over the 450 prophets of Baal. He had tasted of the word of God and seen the miracles of God as the rains fell down and Elijah outran his chariots. He had seen and experienced the mercy of God for himself as God had been patient with him over and over and over again. But it never drew him to a point where he would surrender his heart to the Lord and repent of his sin and allow himself to be changed on the inside. See, God's not interested if we've been in church or if we've heard his word or if we've experienced miracles in his name or if we've heard his voice even or done good things from time to time. God's interested in will you let him into your heart and into your life and change you from the inside? Will you be born again and put your old man on the cross and the world behind you and follow Jesus and live the new life? That's what God is interested in. And Ahab never comes to that point. He humbles himself, but he doesn't repent. And we're going to see that he goes from bad to worse. So not only does he let the enemy live, not only does he allow his passions to master him, but now as we get into chapter 22, we see strike three against Ahab, and that is that he refuses the voice of truth. Notice in verse one. It says, and they continued, or I'm sorry, they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year, that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, so now we jump back for just a brief moment into the southern kingdom. You recall that Israel's divided, the ten nations to the north led by Ahab, the two tribes to the south led by uh, Jehoshaphat now, and it says that Jehoshaphat from Judah came to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth in Gilead is ours. And we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. And so it tells us that there was three years of peace between these two nations that had been at constant war for many years now. You know Ben-Hadad in Syria and Ahab and the Israelites, they had been fighting continually, but after the covenant that was made in the previous chapter between Ahab and Ben-Hadad, there was peace now in the nation. But do you remember that a promise was given? Remember when Ahab spared Ben-Hadad's life? He said, hey, you're my brother. We're both kings. I'm going to let you live. And Ben-Hadad promised that he was going to restore the cities that he had taken. Among those was Ramoth-Gilead, the city that's mentioned here. But what do we see? We see that he didn't come through on the promise that he made. 
That's always what happens when you make a deal with the devil. See, Ahab let Ben-Hadad into the nation, but Ben-Hadad didn't give back the territory that he promised. Same thing happens to us. We allow Satan access to areas of our life. He says, I'll give back territory that I already took from you. But he doesn't come through on his promise. He never does. And that's what happens here. And so Jehoshaphat comes to Ahab. They make an agreement together. Hey, now we've got to go and take the land that he promised to take. But Jehoshaphat, a good king, says, can we pray about this? Is there any prophet that we can go to and get an answer from the mouth of the Lord? And so we meet this Jehoshaphat. Now, he was a good king, and he's going to go down in history as one of the good kings. But he has some weaknesses. One of his weaknesses is that he's naive. We're going to see that a little bit later in the chapter. We also see that he's one who gets himself entangled in corruption. He makes an allegiance with the wicked king Ahab, and he's one who has a tendency towards compromise, and it's going to get him into trouble. Good heart, good man, God-fearing, but some weaknesses. Well, here's what happens now in verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And he said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides these that we might inquire of him? He sees this 400 prophet entourage, and he hears what they're all saying, and he goes, You know, this is cool and all, but is there maybe someone else, like someone maybe that doesn't, you know, go with the flow quite so much that we could ask him. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, well, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Every time I go to him, he tells me things I don't want to hear. He's so negative, and I just can't stand to be around the guy. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Kiana, came with horns of iron. So here's a prophet with props. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until you have consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spoke unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let your word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them and speak that which is good. So now here comes the messenger with Micaiah, the prophet that Jehoshaphat wants to hear from, and he's giving him the briefing. He's putting words in his mouth. He's saying, listen, just listen to what everyone else is saying and then do what they do and say what they say and by all means make sure it's positive and good. No negative words before the king. And so Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, What the Lord says unto me, that is what I'm going to speak. Now, a prophet in the Bible is one who speaks for or on behalf of the Lord. There is a difference between prophets in the Old Testament and prophets in the New Testament. But the major difference in that is that a prophet in the New Testament is not bringing any new revelation. See, in the Old Testament, you would have the prophet Isaiah, and he would speak by the Spirit of God. His words would be recorded, and they would be canonized in Scripture. But the Scripture is now a completed record. There's no more adding to what God has said. He's told us that his word is complete with the book of Revelation, and he pronounces a curse upon anyone who tries to add anything to it. So there's nothing new to be added to the revelation of God. That doesn't negate the fact that there are still men and women that speak for the Lord in the present day. It's called the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. And there are prophets in today's era in the same way as there was in those days, only without new revelation. Now, I believe that in New Testament times, it is the heart of God and the will of God that his pastors operate in the prophetic realm. 
Now, you don't have to be a pastor to operate within the prophetic realm, but I believe that it's the intent of God that within the calling of a pastor, when he's speaking forth the word of God or giving a message from the word of God, that he's doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit and that there's a prophetic element to it. I ask God for a prophetic element when I'm going to be teaching his word in front of people. I don't want to just give words or information or a study or an outline, but God, I need you to breathe on it and take the things that I say and pierce hearts like arrows and let the words stick inside and let there be an element of heaven that supersedes the natural process of just words and let it get into the hearts and the lives and do something that's going to be lasting and eternal and transformational and of value within their lives. That's the office of the New Testament prophet, to speak forth for the Lord things that God's spirit can then back up and get behind and produce change and good in the lives of those that hear. I like what A.W. Tozer uh, did. He, he was you know, a very strong prophetic voice for the Lord. There was one document that he always kept with him all the time wherever he went. He would read it frequently. And what it was was the prayer that he offered to the Lord on the day of his ordination. And I want to read you just one paragraph from that prayer. He said, Lord Jesus, I come to thee for spiritual preparation. Lay thy hand upon me. Anoint me with the oil of the New Testament prophet. Forbid that I should become a religious scribe and thus lose my prophetic calling. Save me from the curse that lies dark across the modern clergy, the curse of compromise, of imitation, of professionalism. Save me from the error of judging a church by its size, its popularity, or the amount of its yearly offering. Help me to remember that I am a prophet, not a promoter, not a religious manager, but a prophet. And let me never become a slave to crowds Heal my soul of carnal ambitions and deliver me from the itch of publicity. That will always be the heart cry of someone who has a genuine heart to speak forth for the Lord. To not get caught up in the fray of professional religiosity, but rather to speak with sincerity and in humility before the Lord the things that he has laid out by the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, there is a such thing as false prophets. Did you know that? Did you know that not everyone who says, thus saith the Lord, or who even says Jesus in their message or claims to follow Jesus is speaking forth by the word of God? There are false prophets. In fact, Jesus said in the last days, you can expect that this will happen more and more. His exact words were this. He said, take heed. And this was in his message about the second coming. He says, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, for a long time, I thought that he was saying people would come on the scene and claim that they were the Christ. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is people will come on the scene in his name, and they will say he is the Christ, but yet they're not sent by him. See, for us, oftentimes, that's all someone has to say. They just have to say, well, in Jesus' name, and Jesus Christ is Lord. And then we listen to him. We let all of our guard down, and we say, oh, well, they preach Jesus. They preach Jesus from the Bible, and so everything they say must therefore be right. Jesus says, take heed that you are not deceived, because many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and many will be deceived, because that's as far as they will test to see whether the Spirit is from me. Not all who say, thus saith the Lord, are from him. So how do you discern a false prophet? What are the marks of a false prophet? Well, we see them clearly here in the text before us. Number one, a false prophet will always follow the flow of popular sentiment. They'll figure out what everyone else is prophesying, and they'll join their message in tandem with theirs so that they sound eerily similar. What does God say about that? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 30, he says, Therefore, behold... I am against the prophets, says the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. There's no, there's no graveness in their message. They, everything is light and humorous. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, and here's how you'll know, they shall not profit this people. Play on words there. 
the prophet will not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. But that's a sure sign of a false prophet is when they're just going along with what everyone else says. I find it so funny. I know I've said this before that when you get the catalog from CBD, from Christian book distributors, or you see, you know, the things that are said, you just go through the catalog and you can just categorize all the books. Oh, there's one on marriage. There's one on sex. There's one on, you know, giving. There's one. And, and, and it's just like they're just stealing their words from each other. They're repackaging the same message another way and just selling books. It's all about selling books, all about filling crowds, filling seats. Nickels and noses, that's the game. It's just a business, just an industry. Beware of it. The second mark of a false prophet is that they'll be very slow to offend, if they'll do it even at all. Notice what Ahab's looking for in a good pastor or prophet. He goes, yeah, there's one more guy. He's got a small church on the other side of town, but I don't like him because he never prophesies good towards me. His message is always negative, and I don't want to hear anything about it. Again, in verse 13, the messenger that was sent by Ahab tries to persuade Micaiah and say, hey, only say what's pleasant and good. Don't say anything that's going to be deemed offensive at all. A false prophet will never use words like sin or repent. They'll avoid issues that are offensive to God, but that are accepted by man or society. They'll always keep the message positive and never leave someone feeling like they're not right with God. But listen, the truth of the gospel is offensive. The cross is offensive. It's a stumbling block to Greeks, the Bible said. When you study the book of Acts and you look at what the preaching of the truth of the gospel did in the life of the apostle Paul, you realize that you cannot preach the truth of God and be the friend of the world. It is impossible. But if someone is always preaching a message that sits well with the world, you can be sure that there's something about that message that God is not in. The third thing a false prophet will do is that they will appeal to the emotional. We see this false prophet, Zedekiah, building these two iron horns and putting on this dramatic display in front of Ahab and Jehoshaphat saying, with these, by these horns shall you push back the king of the Syrians. This big, dramatic, emotional presentation in his prophecy. There is a difference between the soul of man and the spirit of man. We are three parts. We are body, soul, and spirit. The body is the physical. The soul is the seat of the emotions. It's where we think, it's where we feel, it's where we reason, it's our cognitive powers. That's our soul. And our spirit is the part of us that relates to God and it deals with facts and it deals with truth, apart from our emotions. It's very easy to mix up a soulish experience from a spiritual experience. Oftentimes, if someone feels good about something that they're hearing or experiencing or seeing, they will validate it as good or godly based on the fact of how it makes them feel rather than upon the fact of what God has to say about it. But sometimes feelings are not an accurate reflection of what God is willing or wanting in the spirit. They could be completely two totally different things. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the word of God is living and powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. See, the soul bases its decisions, its inclinations on feelings. The spirit bases it on fact. What does God say about this? And when you base your decisions or your spiritual direction based on how you feel rather than based on what God says, you are following a soulish experience. And the false prophet will always appeal to the soul, how it makes you feel rather than the truth of the matter and how it pierces the heart. And then finally, the mark of the false prophet is that they always operate to impress men, but not God. In John chapter 5 Jesus was having a discussion, as was his custom often, with the Pharisees, the religious zealots of his day. And he said these words, which are so profound. He said, I receive not honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I am come in my father's name and you do not receive me. But if another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one from another and seek not the honor that comes from God only. Jesus says, if you're after honor from men and the purpose of your message and your work is to be esteemed highly by them, then you cannot please God. If you're a 
called of God, if you're true, then your audience is one. You serve the true and the living God, and you give the message that God tells you to give, regardless of the outcome and what it will cost you. And understand that it will cost you. God give us and make us those that would be sensitive to hear his voice, bold enough to speak the truth, carry nothing but for his honor and his glory, and give us a desire to please only him, and give us a prophetic voice. But understand it's going to come with a price tag. Verse 15, it says, So he came to the king, Micaiah now, the true prophet. And the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramath Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that you tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? So here's the idea. He said it very sarcastically. He said, yes, go, fight, and you will prosper in the name of the Lord. And Ahab picked up on it right away. He heard the sarcasm in his voice, and he immediately calls him out on it. And now Micaiah gives the truth of the matter, verse 17. And he said, I saw, and here's what he saw, all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that you would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? So now he's not happy because he doesn't like the message. So he didn't like the sarcasm in the message that he wanted to hear. So now he's getting the message that he doesn't want to hear, and he yells at the guy for giving him the truth. This guy's all messed up. And he said, Hear thou therefore, verse 19, Micaiah speaking, the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith or how? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you shall persuade him. That's going to work. And you'll prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. Now, this is an extremely complicated passage of Scripture, isn't it? We get a glimpse into the boardroom of heaven here. And we see God conferring with the host of heaven, the angels, and talking about how is it that he can take Ahab down. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take Ahab down. So how's he going to do it? He wants to do it in a way that's just because God is just. He always is. He doesn't not going to violate Ahab's will. He wants to do it in a way where he's going to give Ahab a choice because he always gives us the choice and makes us then stand in the results that we, uh, we, we, we um, sow for ourselves. And God always wants to show grace where he can. And so God says, how are we going to do this? Ahab is crossed the line so many times and he's through. So how are we going to get him to go into battle so that he can perish in the battle? And one says after this manner and one says after that manner and finally one says, I'm going to be a lying spirit in the mouth of his false prophets and they're going to prophesy to him and they're going to win. And God says, that's going to work. Go uh, and do it in this thing. What do we see here is this, is that God pulls the strings concerning the things that happen on earth. That even Satan works for God. He cannot act autonomously. He can only go as far as the boundary that God sets for him, and he can go no further, and ultimately Satan serves God's purposes. We see that from Genesis to Revelation. He is wicked, he is evil, he is rebellious, but he is not God's equal, and he cannot go beyond what God allows him to do. And so here God's going to allow a lying spirit to go into the mouth of false prophets to persuade Ahab to do this. God is perfectly fair in the way that he deals with Ahab here. Is Ahab going to listen to truth or will he listen to lies? What does he want in his life? God's going to leave the ball in his court. I'm amazed at how much grace Ahab's been given. It's way more than he deserved uh, in this whole thing. God loves us enough to tell us the truth. Do you know that? He tells us the truth about ourselves, and sometimes that truth hurts. He tells us the truth about sin and what it does. He tells us the truth that sin is pleasurable for a season. 
But he also tells us that in the end, it brings death and destruction. He tells us the truth about it. He's faithful to tell us the truth about our lost condition as human beings, that we're not born into this world right with God, happy little creatures that you know, are on our way heaven-bound no matter what. He loves us enough to tell us that we're lost, and he loves us enough to tell us that our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil, the very things that allure us and draw us. He's faithful to tell us the truth that those things are against us. Jesus said that he came into the world to bring light to men, but that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, and so therefore they wouldn't come to the light. Jesus said they don't want to hear the truth because they want to live according to their flesh and according to the passions of their flesh. They hate the truth. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul said that those that live ungodly lives, they suppress the truth in unrighteous deeds. Meaning that the truth is there for them to see. God has revealed it through the creation and in their conscience and through the word of God that ultimately everyone will hear. But that because men love darkness, they suppress the truth and they squash it down and they won't listen to it because they want to continue living in their unrighteousness, but all the while thinking that they're living righteously. What did Jesus say about the truth? He said that if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. That that's the desire that God has for our lives. He tells us the truth that grates against our flesh and that irritates us and that wounds our pride. But the reason that he does it is because he wants us to be free from the destruction that living after the world, the flesh, and the devil will bring to us in our lives. What we must do is be willing to embrace the truth about ourselves and the truth about sin and the world and the nature of it. And then we have to be willing to give our lives over to God that we might find God's power to change those things about us that are keeping us bound and held captive. He tells us the truth because he loves us. But Ahab is a man who continually here hates the truth. And so God's going to give him over to deception because he wants to suppress it. He loves the false prophets, has no interest for hearing the truth of God. Verse 24, but Zedekiah, the son of Kaana, went near and he smote Micaiah on the cheek. And he said, which way went the spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see in that day when you shall go into an inner chamber and hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and carry him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, thus saith the king, put this fellow in the prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and the water of affliction until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return at all in peace, then the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hearken, O people, every one of you. So Micaiah, in front of all 400 of those false prophets, calls him out. And he says, you all listen to me. If you return in peace, then God has not spoken by me. So here's the battle. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle. But you put on your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, remember before I told you that Jehoshaphat was naive? (laughs) Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to dress up like a soldier and go out with those guys. You put on your robes and hang out here by yourself. And we'll go to battle that way. Jehoshaphat says, okay, that's a great idea, you know. I'm so encouraged that God likes people like that. Because I am so Jehoshaphat. I would be like, all right, that's cool. (laughs) You know, but but the king of Syria commanded his 32 captains that had the rule of his chariots saying, fight neither with small nor great, only with the king of Israel. (laughs) And it came to pass that when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And it came to pass that when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture, and he smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore, he said unto the driver of his chariot, turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. So Jehoshaphat cries out in fear, and the people, the, the, the Syrians realize, hey, that's not Ahab, that's, that's a fake, that's a phony. And so some guy takes his bow, and it says that he drew a bow, an arrow at a, at a venture, and he just let it fly. And that arrow just happened to pierce between the joints of the armor of Ahab, the king. And he says, get me out of here, I'm bleeding to death. 
in verse 35, and the wound or the battle increased that day and the king was stayed up or held up in his chariot against the Syrians and he died at evening and the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot and there went a proclamation throughout the host about the going down of the sun saying every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood just like Elijah said. And they washed his armor according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? The legacy of Ahab at the end of all of his life is that he was the idiot who built an ivory house. When you live your life allowing your enemies to have free course within your life. And when you live your life with no control over your flesh, but giving yourself to every appetite that you have internally, and when you suppress truth that God sends into your life in order to set you free, that you might experience the life that he wants to give, then you're an idiot. And that's what eternity will write upon your life if that's the way you live. You can read the rest of the chapter. We won't come back to it. It just kind of sums up the beginning of Jehoshaphat's reign um, and gives us a brief character sketch of him. Um, but there's nothing in it that's earth shattering. The musicians can come. And as they do, there are three great enemies that we face as Christians in this world. The Bible spells it out for us. That they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. How do we conquer those enemies? First of all, you've got to recognize what they are and for what they are. The Bible defines all that is in the world to be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. First John chapter 2, verse 16, it says that those things are not of the Father, but they are of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. What the world does, if you let the world get into your heart and be a part of your life. What the world does is that, first of all, it chokes the word of God. Matthew chapter 13, what did Jesus say? He said that the cares of this world choke the word of God so that your life becomes unfruitful. And Once it does that, then it steals your soul. Because Jesus said, what does it profit if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? And that's what the world does. So how do you overcome the world as a Christian? 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, John says this. He says, For whatsoever, whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, more accurately, the cross of Jesus Christ, you are making a visible recognition that you are departing from the ways of this world and you're throwing in your lot with Christ the King who put the world behind him. And it's the victory of faith in what Jesus is, did on the cross that gives us victory over the world. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. Our second enemy is the flesh. Our flesh is our old sinful nature that lives only for self-gratification. What it does, if you let the flesh have its way within your life, is that it will suppress the power of the new life that God wants to give you, and it will bring you into bondage to its desires. That's what the flesh does. It chokes out the power and presence of God's Spirit within your life until it's rendered completely inactive. So the way to overcome that is twofold. First of all, the Bible commands us to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to take up our cross and deny it. And then second of all, to feed and strengthen the new man. See, the stronger dog is the one that gets the meat, right? And if there's two natures living inside of you, the one that will prevail is the one that's fed. The one that will die is the one that's mortified. So we overcome by the power of God's spirit, feeding the spirit within us. And finally, the devil. We know who the devil is. We don't need to get into that. But Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Jesus is our victory over Satan. The closer we stay to him, 
the less chance he has to take a swipe at us. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at Ahab and we learn from him, Lord, what not to do. And so often, Lord, the examples in Scripture are more of what not to do than what to do. And so tonight, Lord, I pray for every one of us here that not one of us, Lord, would go down in history with the legacy of an Ahab, having wasted our life, lived for things that cannot satisfy and that can never last. So give us wisdom, Lord, and help us see with eyes of the Spirit the invisible kingdom that you've prepared for those that love you. Let us put the world behind us and see the Savior who loved us so much that he was willing to bleed out on a cross and hang and die that we might have eternal life. And a God who loves us so much that he's willing to tell us the truth, even a truth that hurts, that he might rescue us from the pit of hell and show us a grace and a love that we could never comprehend or understand. Lord, may we leave here tonight in awe of you, in love with you, and empowered by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.